0: There is something about invitation songs. There's something about them. I am. Probably some of my favorite songs. That's what they just say. Have thine own way, Lord. I surrender all. There's just something about that that touches your heart and draws you in closer to the Lord. And I appreciate it tonight. I appreciate the sweet spirit of the Lord in this place tonight. I appreciate him touching our hearts, touching my heart tonight. I'd be fine tonight if there was no preaching. I'd be fine with that. I'd be fine if we just worshiped him tonight. I don't know. Let's just pray tonight. Let's just, just, just do that. Let's just have a word of prayer. Father, I am grateful in my heart for you. And for everything that I have in you. Lord, I think about my heritage, I think about my family, the church that you allowed me to pastor. Thank you for my children. Thank you, Lord, for the call to preach. What a privilege that is. So many times, so many times, you should have wiped your hands of me and said, no more. Too much dross, but I'm glad you never threw the clay away. Why you use me, why you allow me to still preach and still serve you, I do not know why, but I'm grateful for it. Thank you, Lord, for touching our hearts tonight to these men singing and drawing us in just a little closer to you. I'm grateful for it. I pray you'd help me tonight, Lord, and I pray you clear my voice and allow me to preach just for a little bit. Whatever it is tonight that we need, I pray that you'd give it to us through your word. Give us liberty in this service tonight, I pray. In Jesus' name, and amen. Matthew chapter 17 tonight, would you find it with me? I've been battling sinus infection all week, and I've been taking whatever drugs I can take. I feel like that woman with the issue of blood. Haven't grown better, rather grown worse. But y'all pray for me tonight. But Matthew chapter 17 tonight. If you will, look at verse number 14. Fellas, I enjoyed that singing tonight. Bless my heart. Bless my heart. When they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son. For he is lunatic and sore vexed, for oft times he falleth into the fire and often to the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil and he departed out of him and the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place. and It shall remove and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Now be this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. The text immediately before this in chapter 17 is the Mount of Transfiguration. It's where Jesus had taken three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up into a mountain for a season of prayer. And it's on that mountain that the Father allows the glory of Christ to break through that veil of flesh and the disciples get to see Christ in his full glory. We call it the transfiguration because of verse number two, he was transfigured before them. His face shone like a sun. His garments became as white as light. On top of that, Elijah and Moses, they make an appearance there. And so these disciples are privileged to see some things that no other man has ever seen. But now the Lord and those three have come off of that mountain back to the other disciples and the multitude that are waiting for them. And when they come off of that mountain, one of the first people that they encounter is a father from somewhere who begs Jesus to help him with his son. His son is described in pitiful terms. He's possessed of a devil. That devil is torturing him. But the point of the incident is not to demonstrate Jesus' power over demonic forces that has been demonstrated before time and time again. But that story serves as simply a backdrop for the disciples' failure. Evidently, this father has brought his son to the nine disciples who had been left behind. They had earnestly tried to cast out the devil and they had utterly failed. And so Jesus did what they could not do, and the man goes on his way. And then sometime later, those disciples come back to Jesus. They're bothered by their failure, and they privately ask the Lord, why did we not have the power to perform that miracle? Now, at first glance, there are several lessons to be drawn from the story, and the most obvious one is that you can't live on a mountaintop and help people. Peter had wanted to build three tabernacles. This is so great and wonderful. Let's just stay right here. But the problem is, there are real people with real problems down below, and we are called to minister to them. So you can't sit in your ivory palaces and have any kind of ministry. You have to touch people if you're going to help them. The song says, How can we reach a world we never touch? It's good every once in a while to have a mountaintop experience and, and see the glory, but you can't become so heavenly minded that you are of no earthly good. When you come to church, it ought to be a glorious experience. It has been tonight for me, and it ought to be a heaven top experience, and, and I hope that you leave church charged up and revived and, and excited about Jesus, but it better not stop there. Because you're going to rub shoulders tomorrow with hurting people, confused people, lost people. And what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to take what we experience in the mountaintop experiences of our worship and our walk with God and go down into a lost world and share Christ with them. You can't live on a mountaintop experience if you're going to help people. You can glean from this story as well that great victories are always followed by great defeats. One of the most glorious scenes in all the gospels is transfiguration followed immediately by one of the most pitiful One of the great failures in the gospels. And how many of you know that you can be on the mountaintop on Monday, be down in the dumps on Tuesday. You can leave church Sunday night shouting it out with the victory. Monday morning your boss cuss you out and you lost all your shout. That's how it happens. And so nobody stays on the mountain. Valleys and defeats are part of something that all of us have to live through. And, and, And by the way, that, that's actually a good thing. If you just stayed on a mountaintop all of your life, you would be of no good to people because you would have such a lofty view of yourself. But if you lived in the valley all of your life, you'd be so depressed you couldn't help anybody there either. That's right. So God gives us highs and God gives us lows. The focus of the story, however, is the failure of the disciples. In verse number 19, they said, Why could not we cast him out? Now, it's a troubling question, and here's the reason why. God had previous; Christ had previously given them power to do that very thing. That's right. Hold your finger right here. Go to Matthew chapter 10, just a couple of the chapters back. And in Matthew chapter 10, if you will, really look at verse number one. When he called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all manner of sickness, all manner of disease. Look at verse number seven. He said, as you go, preaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely give, receive, freely give. He had sent them out not many months prior, and he had given them the power to do those very things. Now, I believe that's apostolic power. I I believe that's given to them. They're preaching a kingdom message to a Jewish nation, and so so I want to make sure that we've got our dispensations straight. But they were given the power. And they exercised the power. Go over to Mark chapter 6. Look at Mark chapter six. In Mark chapter six and verse number 12, and they went out and preached that men should repent. Watch this, and they cast out many devils. And anointed with oil, many that were sick and healed them. They had been given the power and they had gone out and they had done those very things. But something has happened between then and now in Matthew 17 and they have lost the power and a father comes to them begging them to help him with his tortured son. Nine disciples are trying and none of them can make that devil come out of that son. I don't think that we'd be too far off to make a parallel to our church today. We pray all the time for the power of God on our lives and upon our church. And the reason why is because we recognize that we need God to move on our behalf. We know that without the power of God, that our preaching is in vain, and our witnessing will fall on deaf ears and our prayers will go unanswered. but the Western Church and Western Christianity, for the most part, is a powerless Christianity. We can come to church and we can sing and we can preach and we can testify and if we're good enough, we can manufacture a good church service. I said last night that we've learned how to become professionals in the pulpit and we can, we, 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 we've learned how to manipulate the song service and, and manipulate the invitation, and manipulate the altar call and manipulate the emotions and get a response and say, hey, that was powerful but I'm gonna tell you something. If you're gonna have anything of eternal value, it will will not be done by the arm of the flesh. It'll be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One come down. And how we desperately need for God to move and and the Spirit of God to deal with sinners and the power of Christ to be shown in our churches. It makes us question, why no power? Why is so much of our Christian life and worship and service I have so much of it done in the energies of the flesh without any real demonstration of the power of God. What Matthew is going to demonstrate, he's going to demonstrate one response from Jesus about a lack of faith. There's a parallel account in the gospel of Luke that I believe gives us some other hints to what's happened in the lives of these disciples. I want you to hold your finger, Matthew 17. We're coming back to it. But I want you to go to Luke chapter 9 for just a minute. Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 covers what Matthew covers in Matthew chapter 10 through 17. Luke condenses it, obviously. But look at Luke chapter 9 and look at verse 1. Then he called his 12 disciples together, gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither staves nor the script, neither bread, neither money, neither have two coats of peace. You read about that in Matthew chapter 10. Look if you would in verse number 37. It came to pass that on the next day when they were come down from the hill, much people met him. Behold, a man of the company cried out, saying, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son, for he is my only child. And, lo, a spirit taketh him, and he suddenly crieth out, and it teareth him, that he foameth again, and bruising him, hardly departeth from him. And I besought thy disciples to cast him out, and they could not. That's Matthew chapter 17. So Luke chapter nine, you have Matthew chapter 10 all the way through chapter 17. And what Luke chapter nine is going to identify you is he's going to identify some incidents in the lives of those disciples as they went out from the time when God gave them the power to the time it's obvious they've lost their power. And I believe what he's going to demonstrate for you in Luke chapter nine is there are some spirits, there are some attitudes that these men had that cost them the power of God. If you go to Luke 9 and verse 10, here's the first one. The Bible says the apostles, when they were returned, told him all that they had done. I'm going to call this an inflated spirit. Catch this. They came back, they told him all that they had done. I don't want to read between the lines, I don't want to accuse the disciples unjustly, but when all that you can talk about is what you have done, you'll lose the power of God. It's been said that God will not use a proud man. He'll not share his glory with any man. And if you have to have the spotlight on you, you have to forfeit the power of God in your life. I am leery of some preachers who have to be the star of all of their illustrations. But all the illustrations are about them. Let me tell you what I've done. Let me tell you how big a church i built. Let me tell you how good a preacher, let me tell you how busy I am preaching out. We have a success syndrome in our independent Baptist movement and it is literally killing us measuring success by numbers and, and by crowds and how big is your church and how many do you run and how big is your offering and how busy are you preaching out and all that that does is breeds it breeds a dishonesty because then we become prone to exaggerate our own goodness. It is the curse of the inflated spirit. That's why a pastor has to be so careful who he recognizes and who he doesn't. Who he puts in a position. Why does she get to sing the special? Why, why does he get to teach the class? Why, why did he put that young couple over, over the door? Why, why? And you gotta be careful that you don't ever remove anybody from a position because you can't ever imagine anybody could ever do that job better than what you can. Okay. And, and what, we really, what we really need is to remember, remember that you and me and all of us, we are nothing without God. It's an inflated spirit. I'll show you another one in verse 49. Verse 49, John answered, said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name and we forbade him because he followeth not with us. I call this an inconsiderate spirit. John reports, hey, by the way, Lord, while we were out preaching, we encountered another man. He was casting out devils. He was doing it in your name, but we rebuked him because he wasn't part of us. Now, he's doing a good thing and he was doing it in your name, but he wasn't part of the 12. Huh? He he wasn't in our camp. He wasn't part of our circle. He didn't belong to our fellowship. He wasn't part of our group, so we didn't have nothing to do with him. Now don't run out of here and say, I've opened the door to compromise. I don't believe that. There's people, there are churches in our town we're not gonna hook up with. There are some people I am not going to fellowship with, but independent Baptists have become so cliquish and so clannish that we don't fellowship with anybody. If you don't cross every T and dot every I, exactly like I do, and if you didn't graduate from my alma mater, and if you don't support my school, and if you don't believe what I believe about the gap theory or whatever it might be, something really critical, huh? And I tell you that when you become so spiritual that there ain't nobody you can fellowship with, and you can't allow any disagreement among the brethren that inconsiderate spirit will rob you of the power of God what he says in verse 51, it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. He said fastly, set his face to go to Jerusalem, sent messengers before his face and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for it. They did not receive him because his face was as though he would go up to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did. Now I always thought that was kind of funny. How are you going to call fire down on them? You can't even cast the devil out. Huh? Pride has put them on a pedestal. Yep. Ain't nobody spiritual as we are, it. right? It. And, and there are some men tonight, they'll never be able to help people because they have such a low view of people. I can listen to a man preach and I can tell you what he thinks about Christ, what he thinks about himself, and what he thinks about other people. And I know people are carnal and worldly and stubborn. I know all of that. But if you put yourself on such a high spiritual plane and everybody else is just a notch below, there'll be no power in your life. It's got to be the love of God. There's got to be some grace. There's got to be some kindness. There's got to be some compassion there. That, that inconsiderate spirit. I'll show you another one. An in, immature in, in spirit. Look at Verse 46. There arose a reasoning among them which one of them should be greatest. And Jesus perceiving the thought of their heart took a child and said, the greatest, well, you kidding about it. Ain't none of you very great right now. You know, it is immature to be concerned what position somebody else gets. It is immature to be concerned if somebody else receives more praise than you've received. It is immature to get offended if your name didn't get mentioned. Or if they missed your birthday in the bulletin. Somebody didn't sing to you. That self-promotion would cost you the power of God. That's what So what I'm trying to say is that when you come to Matthew chapter 17, there are some things that have happened in those two months period, and there's a spirit that has come over these men, and it has cost them the power of God. Amen. It is that lack of power that is highlighted in this passage, a lack of power. And because they didn't have the power, they... Failed. And the story is not to tell you about the little boy. It's not to tell you about the faith of the father. The story is there to tell you about the failure of the disciples. They could not. And nobody likes failure. We're all geared to success, aren't we? We're all, we're all geared to broadcast our successes and hide our failures. I want you to know how great I am. I want you to know that everywhere I go, the power of God falls, so I can put it on Twitter and brag about myself. I I mean, if we have a record, we, if we break a record attendance, we put it on Facebook. If we don't, we don't say nothing about it. That's right. Right. I could give you a hundred ways tonight that we inflate our goodness and we exaggerate our successes, but did you know that there are some lessons tonight that God would teach you in failure that he can never teach you in success? Failure is a great teacher and the Lord will allow you to fall flat on your face so that you can learn some things you otherwise could not learn. How will you ever learn? How will you ever learn that I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me if you never realize your own weakness. How will you ever learn that when I am weak, he is strong, if you never feel that you are weak? That's just theory. It's just a verse to put on a plaque on the wall. That's just a memory verse is all it is until you feel your own weakness. It is in our weakness that we learn to rely upon his strength. It is on our emptiness that we learn to rely upon his sufficiency. So we look at failure as a school. It hurts my pride. It humbles me, but God's going to teach me something he could not teach me in success. Look at the story, Matthew 17, I'm hurrying. Matthew 17, let me show you three lessons. This is the simplest message you have ever heard in your life. But there are three lessons that he teaches them in failure. Here's the first one. You will never advance beyond your need for Christ. The Mount of Transfiguration focuses on the three disciples. Watch this who were with Jesus. But this story brings the other nine back into focus. It is while Jesus was away that they failed at the miracle. The reality is that without Christ present, they really were no more than anybody else. We don't have Christ physically present with us, I understand that. But we do have the spirit of Christ with us. And the reality is that without the Spirit of Christ upon us, you're no more than anybody else. You will never advance in your Christian life where you don't need Christ. Can I say first that you need Christ when you are criticized by your detractors? Look at Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, if you would look, look, look at verse number 14. Mark 9, 14, he came to his disciples, and saw a great multitude about them, the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, What question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered, said, Master, I brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. Mark says that when they came off of that mountain, he found the scribes debating his disciples. We're not told specifically what they're debating about, but the very next verse tells us about this father and their son and and their failure. And I'm not reading too much into the connection, but it's very possible that the scribes were questioning the disciples about this very thing. It's not too hard to imagine them jumping on to the disciples for this and using this to cast doubt upon the disciples themselves. And I say tonight that if you try to live for Jesus and try to do a work for God, you are going to have your share of critics and skeptics and doubters, and the answer is not to have a good comeback. The answer is not to to make sure that you give it right back to them. No, if you really want help, the best thing to do is just take it to the Lord and say, Lord, I really need you to help me through this because the Lord can confound the critic. The Lord can strengthen you in the face of criticism. The Lord can vindicate his servant. You need him when criticized by detractors. You need him when confronted by the demonic. Come back to Matthew 17. Matthew 17, come back to verse 14. There would come to the multitude, come to him a certain man, kneeling down to him, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's lunatic and sore vexed. For all times he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. Now, now, this is an extreme case of demonic power. And some translations say he had epilepsy. I don't believe that. I, I just believe it is demon possession. And this boy is possessed of a demon and and this demon is torturing him. It makes him have convulsions. throws him in the fire. It throws him into the water. He's harming himself. Mark says he has a dumb spirit so he can't speak intelligibly. I've never faced anything like that. And I hope that I never do. But I am told that the devil's like a roaring lion that he seeketh about whom he may devour. He may not possess your child and make him foam at the mouth and, and throw himself into the fire and the water and have convulsion. But I tell you, he would like to destroy every young person in this church tonight. You do know that the devil is against every marriage in this church and the devil is against every spiritual decision that you make this week and the devil is against every teenager, every young couple. The devil would devour your home, he would devour your church, he would devour your testimony and you are powerless tonight against him without Christ. But greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We have been made more than conquerors through Christ. Satan is a defeated foe. I'm going to tell you, you need Christ when faced confronted with demonic forces. But then you need Christ when challenged by defeat. These disciples are bothered. And they're bothered by they don't have any power. Here's what they do they come to Christ. It probably embarrassed them, it probably knocked them down a notch. But they realized they had no power of their own and they had nowhere to go but back to the one. The answer is not just to try a little harder. The answer is not, I'm gonna try a different method. No, the answer is to run to Christ. I am nothing, you are everything. I am weak, you are strong. When you realize, when you realize that you have failed, what it's supposed to do is not drive you into depression. It's supposed to drive you back to Christ. Back to Him. May it teach us you never grow beyond your need for Christ. I cannot preach. I cannot pastor. I cannot love my wife without the power of Christ in my life. I'll show you a second thing tonight. I hurry. You never advance beyond your need for Christ. Secondly, come back to Matthew 17. You will never advance beyond your need for faith. Amen. Look at verse 19. They came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, verily I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you should say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove and nothing it should be impossible unto you. It's not the first time the Lord has upbraided them for their lack of faith. At least four times in the Gospels, he challenges them on having little faith. And I don't know about you, but I fall into the little faith category. I really do. Let me show you a little faith. Matthew chapter six. Matthew chapter six. We okay tonight? Matthew six. Let me show you a little faith. Matthew 6, verse 30, wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field which today is, tomorrow's cast into the oven. Shall they not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? He's talking to them about food and raiment and how he would provide for them. And as long as they have food in the cupboard, they say God provides. But what when you do? what do you do when there is no food in the cupboard? You see, what they struggled with was that faith ran out when the provisions ran out. They had faith in what they could see in their hand, but that is where faith stopped. That's about the level of most Christians' faith. Look at chapter 8, Matthew chapter 8, look at verse 26. He said unto them, Why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. If you would have asked these disciples, do you believe that Jesus will take care of you and protect you? They'd have said amen. They'd have shouted the house down. We preach on the divine care of God and the providence of God and how God takes care of his children. <laughs> and then the storm comes and their faith ran out at the point of the storm. It only went so far. When the storm began, their faith stopped. Look at, look at, look at Matthew Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. Matthew 14 and verse 31. Immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand, called him, said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Peter's got enough faith to get out of the boat and to walk on the water. But the Lord rebuked him because his faith was only strong when there were no waves, when there were no problems. But when the waves rose up, that's where the faith stopped. Amen. You see, little faith is believing God when you have something in your hand. When I have resources, that's what I say, I know God provides. When I don't see any danger ahead, I say, I know that God takes care of his children. When I'm at calm in my soul and there are no storm clouds on the horizon, I say, I've got faith in the peace of God. But great faith says, I trust God when I don't have anything in my hand. Great faith says, I trust God even when the storms are coming right now. Great faith says, I still trust him in the middle of of the storm. So come back to Matthew 17 and verse 20. He says, because of your unbelief. Now watch this tonight. And I won't get get deep into this. Let me just mention this. Verily I said to you, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed. Now Now that seems a little contradictory. He has just upbraided them for little faith. And then he says, you need faith as a grain of mustard seed. And the mustard seed was the smallest seed that they had. So, so how is this not saying that you need just a little bit of faith to accomplish great things? But it's just rebuked them for having little faith. That seems like contradiction, don't it? Seems like. You don't want to say anything because you're afraid it might be. I don't have it all figured out. I know that the mustard seed is very, very small, but here's the second thing you need to know about it. The mustard seed is very, very small, but it grows into something very, very large. It doesn't stay small. It is not that you just need a tiny bit of faith. No. It's you need to exercise that tiny bit of faith for it to grow into something big. Every Christian man or woman of great faith that you know didn't start with that. God didn't just all of a sudden dump a big bucket of faith on them. No, they started with a little faith and started trusting God and walking with God. And over the years, that great, that little faith has grown into a big thing. If I took my grandson on a table, set him on the table and told him to jump in my arms, he'd probably be hesitant. He'd probably be scared. But if I could ever get him to jump that one time and I catch him, You will have no problem after that. he would just keep on a jumping. Now, if he ever jumped and I missed him, don't believe I could ever talk him into jumping again. And if you ever step out by faith and find that he catches you, it won't be so hard to step out the next time. And the Lord Jesus, he upbraised the disciples for their lack of faith. What they, what they learned in the moment of failure is that there are some things that you cannot do on your own. You're going to need God to provide. You're going to need God to intervene. You're going to need God to meet the need. And there will come a time when you will find that your self-sufficiency is not enough and you've got to trust God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. That is for every stage of the Christian life. You will never advance. You will never be so great of a Christian. That you don't need to just trust him in faith. I come back to Matthew 17. Lessons you learn in failure, you'll never advance beyond your need for Christ. You'll never advance beyond your need for faith. Verse 21, you'll never advance beyond your need for prayer. Howbeit this kind goes not out but by prayer and fasting. And I believe the hardest Christian discipline, if we can be honest, is probably prayer. I don't have a good reason for why that is. I suspect that our churches probably suffer more from a lack of prayer than probably anything. And if we could just be honest tonight, if we could just be honest tonight, most of us would probably say that our prayer life is the weakest part of our Christian experience. Because most of our prayers are last minute desperation, Hail Mary's. Or shallow, selfish, superficial prayers. God bless me, give me more stuff, never help me get sick again. Oh, yeah, bless all the missionaries. Amen. Huh? If that sounds like your prayer life, you probably know there's more to prayer than that. But that might be all of your prayer life. I think one of the reasons why we lack in prayer is when we misunderstand prayer. Prayer's not reading a prayer book. Just some brands of religion prayer is reading something out of the back of a prayer book. And we will be real quick to criticize canned prayers read out of the back of a prayer book. And I don't mean to offend anybody tonight, but I wonder if some of the own prayers that we pray in our services, it's no more than vain jangling. But the prayers that we pray in public corporate worship It's just prayers that we've prayed over and over and we don't even think about it. Bless the gift and the giver, those who like to give and those who can't, amen. I'm not against praying that, but nothing wrong with it. But prayer is not just a canned phrase. Can I tell you that prayer is not just asking and receiving? One of the classic books on prayer, John R. Rice wrote, Prayer, Ask, it is an excellent book. It's a great book on prayer. You learn so much, But in that book, he says that prayer is just asking and receiving. There's a lot of prayers in the Bible where there's no request made. Jeremiah prayed, no prayer request. Jonah prayed, no request. What kind of relationship would you have with a person if the only communication you ever have with that person is asking them for something? If every time you call me, you needed to borrow $20, we'll probably get to a point where I quit taking your phone calls if that's all that I am there for, and I hope that you're interested more in knowing God than using God. To have communion with him more than for him to give you a new toy. Prayer is communion. Prayer is communication with God. It involves asking, but it's so much more. It involves confession of sin and worship of God. It involves communion. Communion, it is how we align our wills with the will of God. The average prayer meeting of the average Baptist church. 35 prayer requests about our aches and ingrown toenails. Yeah, that's right. Pray for my third cousin having her appendix removed and pray for my neighbor going through a divorce and I don't know if my neighbor's name, don't know my friend's name and I don't know if he was cheating on his wife or she was cheating on him. I I, I don't know. Really, I'm just making an announcement, not a prayer request. Am I okay tonight? Yes, sir. I know about bringing our request to God and come boldly to the. I, I know about all that, but come on, let's get real. That's right. Pray for me. My washing machine went out. We're going to Disney. We get some free d- tickets to Disney. I wonder how many of our prayers are just selfish desires. Did you know that your greatest need tonight is not physical? The greatest need tonight is spiritual. My greatest need tonight is not money, it's not it's it's, it's not pay raise, it ain't none of that. My greatest need tonight is the bitterness and the pride and the anger and all of that. And if I was to give you a prayer request tonight, won't you pray for me? And if I was honest, really you need to help, help me pray for a spiritual need. Huh? But nobody ever does that, do they? Well, I'd sure like for this church pray for me. I've been struggling with covetousness. Yeah. Well, this church pray for me. I, well, I've been, I've been eaten up with envy and it's killing me. Don't y'all pray God give me victory over that. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. I don't care how high you get in the Christian life. I don't care how advanced you are. You'll never advance beyond your need for prayer. There's never been a great revival that wasn't preceded by the fervent prayers of somebody that just believed God. There's never been a great missionary endeavor that was first bathed in prayer. You'll never advance beyond your need for prayer. We run to the preacher. We run to the counselor. We run to the therapist. But Why don't you just run to God in prayer? God will put you in the school of failure. He'll let you fall flat on your face. And everything that you touch fails. And every day is just disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. Because he knows that as long as everything you touch turns to gold, as long as you're on the mountaintop, there are some things he cannot teach you. Boys, Would you come back tonight I want you to sing that song, Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior. It has about our eyes closed tonight.